This is the fifth talk in a series of talks on the seven stages of the spiritual path, titled Stage 5, Illumination of the Heart, recorded July 13, 1997, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So this morning we're going to talk about the fifth stage in a series of talks about the seven stages of the spiritual path, illumination of the heart. And as I said last time, this really overlaps with the previous stage, which I call purification of mind. So a lot of things that uh, I'm presenting in this stage may be happening already in the previous stage and vice versa. So these two stages are probably least distinct for most people than uh, any of the others. And I think if you wanted to say what characterizes really the fundamental difference is not so much what's happening or the kinds of practices you're doing, but whether it uh, requires a lot of effort or whether it is, has a feeling of effortlessness. So, so far we've talked about the first stage, awaking of faith. Uh, that is, awaking the uh, faith that there is some transcendent dimension beyond our ordinary experience that is a possible source of ultimate happiness. And this Awaking a faith leads to an investigation of teachings where you go out and uh, come to groups like this on Sunday morning, read books, go to lectures, listen to audio tapes in this day and age, and so forth. And that stage culminates in a commitment to one teacher or set of teachings or a set of practices. So you uh, find what's suitable for you, and then you dive in and really investigate in depth. And in the course of trying to do these practices and follow the teachings, most people find that an inner conflict develops. There's the old self wants to carry on in the old way, and the new self is, uh, wants to uh, lead a more disciplined life. And you go back and forth and back and forth. And for some people, this can be a, a very rough uh, inner conflict. It's called in many traditions spiritual warfare, the period of spiritual warfare. But eventually, this warfare gets resolved in a new unification of the self. You now regard yourself as a spiritual seeker. That becomes the priority in your life. And then you really enter the spiritual path proper, uh, the purification of the mind. And this is, uh, as I said last time, you can compare this to setting out on a voyage. In the first three stages, you've discovering there might be some place to go, and then you arrive at the port and you investigate what sort of uh, uh, boat would carry you there, and you go around and talk to various boat owners and finally uh, try some of them out. You sail around the harbor a little bit, but finally you select your boat, the one that's right for you, and now you're sailing out onto the open sea. And you have the goal of enlightenment or gnosis or liberation as your north star to steer by, to guide you. The teachings are your maps. They supply you with uh, some direction. Your uh, rudder and your sails are the practices that you've undertaken, inquiry, meditation, following precepts, and things like that. And in this stage, uh, usually somebody who's really dedicated works very hard doing meditation and inquiry and uh, trying to attain insights that free you from attachment, in the beginning anyway, from worldly attachments. 
and things are going along fine and you seem to be making progress and you are getting insights and you do get a certain amount of freedom from your attachments but then suddenly the wind dies and you hit the doldrums and you're not going anywhere and this is what i call the crisis of faith that ends this fourth stage of purification and really what this signifies is that you've been ignoring something very important uh, you've been working with your rudder and you've been hoisting your sails and letting them down and reading your maps and all that but there's some element in this you can't control and that's represented by the wind the wind of grace and when the wind of grace stops there's nothing you can do and so this is humbling uh, it makes you realize that you are not going to attain this uh, enlightenment through your own self-will your own effort and so what you're learning here uh, and you've been learning it all along but what you're really learning here is you have to surrender your self-will you have to rely on the wind of grace and Theophane the recluse who was an Eastern Orthodox mystic wrote about this he said those who commit themselves irrevocably to grace will pass under its influence and it shapes and forms them in a way known only to itself and so we can say that this uh, stage of illumination of the heart is uh, this shaping and forming and that's what happens in this stage but it only occurs to the extent that you surrender your will there's an old Jewish adage that says uh, whoever is full of himself has no room for God and it's very true and this is what you are learning this is not something that's obvious to people and so the guiding principle in this stage of illumination of the heart is surrender self-surrender and particularly surrender of will because for most people the will the sense of having a will is the linchpin of self it's the heart of this delusion of individual selfhood and this is why Teresa of Avila says do you know when people really become spiritual it is when they become the slaves of God and are branded with his sign in token that they have given him their freedom then he can sell them as slaves to the whole world it's a nice poetic way of expressing this this just surrendering your life giving it over to God and becoming a slave of God and this is in all traditions here's what Ibn Arabi says about the advanced stages of a Sufi path he says they have made themselves ever ready to receive whatever comes from him and have withdrawn completely from their separative cells and their aims so again it expresses this total openness to life accepting whatever arrives and this is really reflecting reality when things happen they happen we do not control things happening and the difference here is that most people turn away inwardly turn away they shrink inside when things un unpleasant things happen and this is having this total openness recognizing and what you're going to find out in this stage more and more is that actually everything is a manifestation of the divine even the skinheads who show up at your door you know you hear a knock in the middle of the night and you go to the door and there's three guys they were shaved heads razor blades in their ear and chains and their belts and so forth and so instead of this inward going oh no i wish this wasn't happening there is this total openness to what is happening this does not mean that you don't take appropriate action and skillful means it does not mean that you invite skinheads to come in and trash your house or something 
But it is that it has to do with this inward attitude of not turning away from life, not turning away from the world. Ramana Maharshi adds this perspective to it. He's a great Hindu mystic of this century. He says, to be complete, surrender must be unquestioning. The devotee cannot bargain with the Lord or demand favors at his hands. Such entire surrender comprises all. It is jnana and bhakti, that is the quest for truth and the path of devotion together. And again, this is sounds almost like some sort of great ideal, but really it's a reflection of what actually goes on. We can't bargain with life. And people who have a naive view of religion try to do that often and then are very disappointed. I uh, myself had this experience as a child. I've told this story before, but I had a dog. Uh, the family had a dog who was very sick. I was about seven or eight years old. Uh, at that point, I'd been told that we're all children of God, so I took this literally. I'm the son of God. So I, my mother was crying, and I told mother, don't worry about it. I'm going to go to church, and I'll talk to my father, and he'll fix everything up. And I was totally convinced, and I went to church, and I prayed and said, you know, please take care of my dog. And I got home, and the dog was dead. And that was the beginning of a, a complete turning away from religion. I became an atheist and, and so forth. This is a very naive view of religion. We can't bargain with life. And to put it in religious terms, you can't bargain with God. I once had a teacher named Stefan Huller. He was from Hungary, and he had this Hungarian accent, and he used to say, God is not an uncle, meaning that an uncle, like a rich uncle, you go and get favors from and money, you know, and so forth. He says, God is not an uncle. God is an earthquake. And it's very true. The role of God in our lives is to shatter our illusions. And so this is the stage in which bhakti and janana, the, the search for truth and the devotion to God, merge, as Ramana Maharshi just indicated. That it, it uh, all merges in the sense of surrender, surrender of self-will. This whole idea is also central to Buddhism. In Buddhism, there's no uh, concept of God in, in, as it is expressed in the other traditions. But it, particularly in the Mahayana Buddha's uh, tradition, the seeker takes a bodhisattva vow. And this is a, a vow to surrender even your personal desire for nirvana in order to help other beings. The Lakanvatara Sutra, Buddhist Sutra, puts this very beautifully. It says, this is called the bodhisattva's nirvana, the losing oneself and the bliss of perfect self-yielding. This is the seventh stage which is just before the eighth stage in the Buddhist scheme of things, which is the stage of awakening, enlightenment. So this losing oneself in the bliss of perfect self-yielding, it's the same as in these other traditions, except it's not surrendering to, an, to a concept of God, but it's surrendering here to the, uh, the ideal of helping all beings to be liberated. So this sounds good, but, of course, always the big question is, how do you do it? And are there practices or a set of practices that can help you do this? And the answer, of course, is yes. Surrender is fostered primarily through the practice of devotion. In the previous stage, in the purification of the mind, uh, most seekers are working with practices like inquiry and meditation and morality, and if they're bhaktis, with devotional practices, formal devotional practices, like formal prayer or chanting or things like that. And you're trying to 
penetrate this veil of delusion, you're trying to uh, attain enlightenment, attain liberation, attain this gnosis. But in this stage, you don't wait to become enlightened, you start acting out of your innate enlightened nature. In all traditions, you know, there's a paradox here about trying to attain enlightenment because truly we are already enlightened. There's a paradox about trying to attain union with God because truly we've never been separated from God. So in this stage, instead of this egotistical effort to attain something and so forth, you drop all that and you just start acting in accordance with reality, with your true nature, even if you don't fully understand it. So what is our true nature specifically? Well, it is selfless love and compassion. That is uh, the nature of God. That is the nature of the, the Buddha. That is the Dharmakaya. And so you just start doing it. And this is very important. Even if you don't understand, you start doing first. And I've often used the example of learning to swim. If you want to learn to swim, you can go to a, a class and you'll get some instruction and the instructor will tell you when you get in the water, move your arms this way and kick your feet and relax and things like that. But the only way to really learn to swim is to get in the pool and start swimming before you know how to swim. And in our lives, we all want the security and the safety to know how to do something before we do it. But the, the truth of the matter is we have to do it and that's how we learn how to do it. The same thing applies to things like driving a car. I don't know if you can remember the first time you got behind the wheel. And the thought is, I, I, I don't know how to drive a car. I can't do this. And you're being asked to do something you don't know how to do yet. But it's through the process of driving the car that you learn. Well, the same thing applies to spiritual practice, especially to spiritual practice, and especially in this stage. So devotion here doesn't mean just uh, doing formal prayers or chanting or something like this. Devotion means devoting your whole life to expressing this selfless love and compassion. And concretely, you do it through service, serving others. And uh, Jesus really summed up the whole thing very succinctly and very beautifully when he said, Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, and with all thy soul. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And what he's saying here, he's speaking within the Jewish tradition, and he's quoting, by the way, uh, Deuteronomy. This is something he made up. And he's saying all the rest of the body of the law and all the commentaries in the body of the law, which fill libraries, uh, Jewish libraries, all of it hangs on these two fundamental principles here. And as he indicates in here, we can think of this total devotion of your life as having two parts, two aspects. Devotion to God and devotion to other beings. So what is devotion to God? Devotion to God, really simply, is serving God instead of serving yourself. And a lot of people think, oh, well, this must mean I have to go out and become a monk or a nun, or I have to go to India and join Mother Teresa of Calcutta and helping the people in the gutter there and so forth and so on. And it's not true. True devotion to God is much simpler on the one hand, but for the same reason, by the same token, it's much more difficult. And uh, a Christian mystic, Brother Lawrence, really gives you the fundamental principle 
of how to apply this, the basic principle. He says, our sanctification depends not on changing our works, but on doing for God what we would normally do for ourselves. So this is very simple. You go to the store to buy some food. Normally, you think of yourself as going to the store to buy yourself some food. Well, instead of going to the store and buying yourself some food, you go to the store and buy God some food. And you can think of your body as a manifestation of God that you have to take care of. Normally, when you uh, do the dishes, you think, oh, I want my house to be clean so I won't be embarrassed when guests come over and so forth. Instead of doing the dishes for yourself, you do, do the dishes for God. Everything you do in your life, you can just become aware of that shift in the motivation. Just shift the motivation. You, most people don't need to change their lives at all. Only if, you're an, uh, if your profession is really harmful, if it's not right living, I don't know, if you're making napalm bombs or something, you might want to change your profession. But for most people, it's not a matter of changing anything. It's simply doing for God what you would normally do for yourself. You go to work, and you think of it as uh, normally, I'm working for my paycheck. But no, you're doing work in the world. You're serving through that work. You're doing it for God. So I say it's simpler because you don't have to change anything in your life, but it's more difficult because there are no excuses. And your ego mind can't say, well, I'll save up some money and uh, eventually I'll be able to go off to India and do this. But right now I have to be involved in worldly things. But it, this is wiping out that distinction. It's really integrating your spiritual practice into your worldly life, or better, better put, taking the very life you're leading as your spiritual path. And you can start this in little ways. Ananda Moyamai, who's a great Hindu uh, mystic of this century, gives this advice. Very simple. She says, in the morning, as soon as you wake up, pray, Lord, accept as thy service everything I shall do today. At night, again, before falling asleep, pray. In self-surrender, I bow to thee, placing my head at thy holy feet. Try to spend the whole day in this spirit. Now, it's interesting because I've read this passage before and so forth, and people hear that. That sounds great. But the trick is to go out and do it. This is quite simple. This is just the beginning of a practice like this. It just means that when you wake up in the morning, as early as possible in the morning, if you can, even before you get out of bed, if you can, your first thought, make this little prayer. And your last thought, going to sleep. Very powerful practice. Those of you in the Wednesday group who've worked with precepts know how powerful it is to implant a seed in your mind, and it starts growing on its own. It's like Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a woman kneading leaven into dough, and then she leaves it alone, and it just grows on its own. This is grace happening. And if you do that, you will find that the middle part of this she talks about, try to spend the whole day in the spirit, it'll start occurring to you spontaneously to do this. Brother Lawrence was a, uh, a lowly cook in a, in a Christian monastery. He was no, you know, bigwig saint. He was hardly recognized. At the end of his life, a few people began to recognize there's something special about this guy, but uh, he was like the janitor, you know. And he had a lot of uh, activities at the monastery. He didn't just spend all his time in prayer. You know, he was the cook, and then he was sent out on missions to buy food, wine, and stuff. So he led a quite active life in that sense. And his sole practice, really, was what he called practicing the presence of God. And the way he did this was just to carry on a continual conversation with God all day long. Just like 
uh, normal people carry on a continual conversation with themselves about what they want and everything. He just substitutes that record that plays in your head for another record. That's a continual conversation with God. And this is the way he described this practice. He says, I was as faithful to this practice during my activities as I was during my periods of mental prayer. For every moment, all the time, in the most intense periods of my work, I banished and rid from my mind everything that was capable of taking the thought of God away from me. So even when he's in the kitchen and he's cooking and he's cleaning up and all this stuff, he's still doing this practice, practicing the presence of God, this conversation. Now again, in uh, Buddhism, as I said before, they don't have a concept of God this way they do in other traditions. But in uh, Tibetan Buddhism particularly, they have a, a concept that uh, the Dharmakaya, the innate nature of everything, manifests out of compassion in the form of deities, which can appear to a seeker and can then become the focus of a devotional practice. One of them is Chenrizik. I'm not, I don't, does anybody know how to pronounce Chenrezi, thank you. There we go. Chenrezi, the Lord of Love, was, a, was a, uh, a big object of devotion. And in the Tibetan tradition, the deity then often manifests as your teacher, your in-flesh teacher. They have a different view of teachers than we do. And there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding in this culture when people come to study with a in-flesh teacher. They don't, they don't have this understanding of this thread that, that is, goes back to the divine. So they actually focus on this uh, lump of flesh and bone and then they get all upset because the lump of flesh of lump and bone is not perfect and whatnot. But if you understand this teaching and you you take this as an object of devotion. Here's how the practice works. Now, this is by Lama Kensei. Compare it to what Lawrence just said. It is important to pray to your teacher at all times and in all circumstances, from the depths of your heart and from the very marrow of your bones. When sitting down, visualize him above your head and pray to him. When walking, visualize him above your right shoulder as if you were circumambulating him. When eating, visualize him in your throat and imagining that your food is transformed into the purest ambrosia offered to him. When going to sleep, visualize him in your heart, seated upon a four-petaled red lotus, radiating light which fills the whole universe. A little bit more elaborate instruction, but isn't this exactly the same practice that Brother Lawrence stumbled upon in this, uh, in this Christian monastery? The whole idea is this focusing your attention completely on the divine. And if you give all your attention to the divine, what happens is you become saturated with divinity, literally. So, again, there's no need to go anywhere. There's no need to change your lifestyle or anything. It's just a question of doing it. Catherine of Siena, a Christian mystic, she sums up the way this whole uh, practice of devotion works at this stage, and particularly how the search for truth and the cultivation of love, Janana and Bhakti, come together. She says, and she's speaking now from the point of view of God, because God's speaking through her, so seeing me, these souls know me, and knowing me, they love me, and in loving me, their selfish will is swallowed up and lost. Having lost their own selfish will, they clothe themselves in mine. 
people often ask, you know, well, if I want to do the will of God, how do I know? What is the will of God? And they rely on their, their intellectual powers to try to figure that out. To a certain extent, you can. What does God want? God wants to be known. I was a treasure that longed to be known. So God wants you to follow a spiritual path in order to know God. But at a certain point, it's through the practice, just like the swimming, that you get to know. And it's to the extent, again, that you surrender your own will. It just becomes obvious and clear what that will is. So what about the other aspect of this practice of devotion? What about devotion to other beings? Well, in the Tibetan tradition, again, they call this bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is the altruistic mind of enlightenment. And it's heavily, heavily stressed in the Tibetan tradition, in spite of the fact that a lot of the texts that you'll read that have been translated uh, are very technical and have to do with meditation and whatever. But it's never divorced from cultivating this bodhicitta, this altruistic mind of enlightenment. <clears throat> and this is what Jamgan Kangshul says about it. The whole basis of mind training is the two principles of one, throwing out concern for your own welfare, and two, taking complete hold of the welfare of others. Again, the whole principle of mind training, everything hinges on this, just what Jesus said. All the law and the prophets hinge on this love and compassion, this devotion. So, Again, how do you manifest this in an actual practice? It's through selfless service to other beings. Selfless service is service with unconditional love and compassion. And this is very important. That was a word that was thrown around a lot oh, in the 80s. Unconditional love. Everybody went to workshops to learn unconditional love. Unconditional love isn't a matter of going to workshops and having heart openings. There's nothing wrong with that. And it gives you a nice taste of uh, uh, really powerful feelings of love, especially if you've never had them before. But unconditional love is very precise instruction. And you can apply this practice very precisely. It means serving without imposing conditions on that service. The Bhagavad Gita puts it very well. It's, it's acting but without attachment to the fruits of your action, without attachment to the reward of your action. And if you start to do this, and again, you always start to do it first, it's through the practice that you discover those attachments that you still have, even little hidden attachments. And as a good example of this is a story that I've told before, maybe some of you haven't heard it, however, about Joseph Goldstein, this American who studied Buddhist meditation with uh, several uh, Buddhist uh, meditation teachers in Burma and India and so forth. And he describes being in India one time and buying a mango in the market. And a little beggar boy came up and as he's buying the mango, just a couple of rupees or whatever, and he looks at the beggar boy and the beggar boy is just standing there with his hands out, you know, and the sad eyes and so forth. And so he looked at the mango, and he looked at the boy, and he gave the boy the mango. And the boy takes the mango, turns around, walks away. Not a smile of acknowledgement, not a thank you, not anything, not any hint that he had been given a gift. And Goldstein said, you know, it's fascinating, because I could see my own mind. I could see wanting just some little acknowledgement that I had done something here, you know. And so there was a little attachment to the fruit of the action.
It doesn't seem like much. And the point here is not to become a great saint. The point here is those attachments are what cause you suffering. And we don't even, we're not even aware of them. So it's not a question of degree. Oh, well, he's really a very generous guy most of the time and all that. This is the way uh, you would judge somebody in a worldly sense. But when, you're, when you want to become free of the causes of your suffering, who cares whether it's a big attachment or a little attachment? It's going to be a cause of suffering. So it's through this practice that you're actually seeing these attachments, seeing how that deluded mind works. And when it comes to light, then you can drop it. Then you can surrender it. So when you surrender it, and this is part of this stage of illumination, you find out something quite wonderful and unexpected happens. It's through that surrendering of attachment that you begin to let love and compassion flow. It's not something you have to spend a lot of time working at. It's not about going to workshops and generating all this. Love and compassion are the nature of the divine and the true nature of everything. They are there. And uh, an image of this is like a well, an artesian well that's been uh, stopped up with rocks and so forth. It's not a question of going and getting a pump and pumping that water out of the ground. Just remove the rocks and little trickle starts. And you remove more and more comes. And if you want to use the image of what's that, the geyser in Yellowstone, Old Faithful. You get all the rocks out and there's just an inundation. So it's really like unplugging a, a faucet here and, and it just starts to just starts to flow. But you have to act first, act first. It's through the action that you discover this. If you wait around to wait till you feel love and compassion, you're gonna wait till the cows come home. This is what ordinary people do. This is what deluded people do. Every once in a while they feel a little generous and so they act on it, but normally they don't. So what can you do here? It's the little things, the specific things that count. And start that way. A lot of people say, oh, I'll give half my money to charities or I'll go out and I'll volunteer at the Sacred Heart Hospital and I'll work in hospice and so forth. But again, you're missing your opportunities right there in your own life. You go to Safeway and you see an elderly person struggling with their bags. You take a moment out, stop, help them put their bags in their car, you know. You're at work, there's a colleague who's loaded down with work. Instead of having this attitude, well, it's not my job description, and you've got some extra time, even if it's not in your job description, go lend a hand, you know. There are opportunities around us all the time. Opportunities of uh, just in your garden. You see a slug crossing the path, then somebody's going to step on you. Take some time out to move the slug. All over you'll find uh, opportunities to be of selfless service. Walk down the street, there, you know, garbage lying around or whatever, litter to pick up. You don't have to go do some big romantic thing. That's usually the ego's trip, wants, wants to do something big and romantic so the ego can feel good. And this is so mundane and so menial, so people say, well, I don't know, that's not really for me, you know. But this is your life. It'll be the same, by the way, if you go... Uh, Volunteer at Sacred Heart Hospital. You know, first month it'll feel great. Oh, you, you're serving people, you're serving people, you know. And then after a while you get sick of carrying out the bedpans with the smell of the urine. And, and you'll really get sick of the fact that the patients don't appreciate you. They swear at you and curse you. And you'll think, this is, you'll, this is terrible. I'm not appreciated. And you'll get burnt out and you'll quit. And you'll 
go back to law school and make a lot of money or something. <laughs> Most powerful of all these, uh, this practice of serving others is to serve your enemy. Try and perform selfless service and for your enemy and do it with unconditional love and compassion. In the Tibetan tradition, they say your enemy is your greatest guru. Your enemy is your greatest guru. And there's another very good example of this, of a story that I heard uh, uh, from a Tibetan who had grown up and was born in Tibet and grew up in Tibet and had to flee uh, when the Chinese invaded and go into exile and uh, made this horrendous journey across the mountains and some of his relatives were killed and friends were killed and so forth. And somebody had asked him, who is your root guru back in Tibet before you left? Because in the Tibetan tradition, you have many gurus, teachers, but there's a one guru that's your root guru, your real heart guru. And he said, oh, that's easy, Mao Zedong. And I said, what? And he said, yes, he said, I grew up in Tibet, I grew up in this monastery, you know, and uh, we studied all this stuff, but we had a good life. We had plenty of food and safety and security and all that. And it wasn't until Mao Zedong came along that he taught me what suffering was really about when the Chinese invaded. And that was the beginning of my real Dharma teaching. Everything else was just theory. So he was my root guru. And he meant this. This isn't just, you know, a little bit of irony. This is why Jesus said, Love your enemies, bless those that curse you, do good to those that hate you, and pray for those who despitefully abuse you and persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what is so exceptional about that? And if you love only your brothers, what do you do that is more than others do? Even worldly people do that. So be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now this is the whole key to the teaching here, this last sentence. And again, this sounds like some sort of impossible ideal. Be perfect, like God is perfect? How could anybody do that? But what's he really talking about here? Perfect means to be complete, and it means to be the reality that you are. And the reality that you are is selfless and has that totally open-ended, compassionate nature. So if you start acting that way, if you start imitating reality, if you start basing your actions on what is real instead of what is deluded, then you will realize what Jesus realized. I and the Father am one. There is no difference. If you're going to do a practice of taking a, an enemy love, uh, my suggestion, again, is to pick one person to begin with. Don't say, oh, I'm going to love all the enemies in the world. No, pick somebody that you run into often during the week. A colleague at work is a very good one. And it doesn't have to be an enemy enemy, just somebody who irritates you, who you feel animosity, who you feel hostile to. And if you do this and you uh, start this practice, again, you won't know how to love that person at first. If any of you are interested, you can read my book. I tried to do this practice with a guy I called Caligula, a producer that was a real son of a bitch. And the practice is you get up in the morning and say, okay, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to try to love this person. And you get there and you can't. And you try this thing out and this thing out and this thing out. And you keep failing and failing and failing. That's what the practice is all about. Don't get discouraged. The whole spiritual path is about unlearning, really. But if you keep at it, you will find out something. It won't be what you expect, but you will. 
So again, make these teachings concrete. They're not great sort of uh, ideals written in stone. They're instructions. I rediscovered Christianity and the teachings of Jesus uh, many years later after my dog died by rereading the Gospels just sort of out of curiosity and saying, my gosh, these are instructions to practice. That's what they are. I had to read other traditions to figure that out because it's not necessarily obviously clear and that's not the way they're taught. And he gives you very concrete instructions. You know, if somebody uh, steals your shirt, we'll give them your coat also. And if someone wants you to walk a mile with them, we'll go two miles with them. In those days, that was quite common. You'd be constricted to carry someone's baggage for a mile, you know. Uh, these are very concrete examples he was giving how to practice this stuff that he taught. Just as somebody uh, once said, we don't really know if Christianity is any good or not because nobody's ever tried it. <laughs> so, this sounds like a lot of work, and in, in the beginning it does require some work, but if you stay at it, the practice itself will start to bear fruit. And this is how Brother Lawrence describes it. He says, in the beginning we must faithfully act and renounce ourselves, and after that comes only unspeakable delights. Unspeakable delights. So to go back to our metaphor of sailing out in the open sea, so you start out in the open sea, and you're sailing along, and at first there's nothing there. And it's kind of boring. You have to sit there, and you have to learn to read your charts and, and navigate by the stars, and you see the North Star at night, and so forth, and just endless water, and so forth. But then you start entering into these uh, areas of the sea where these wonderful islands and there are these wonderful climes going to the tropics and the air is all rich and perfumey and you see new constellations in the sky. If any of you ever traveled like towards the equator, you know, it's a different sky. It's not the, not the Big Dipper stuff. There's the Southern Cross up there. It's all different. It's all magical. And so you start sailing into these areas and start visiting some of these places. And this is what is meant by the illumination of the heart. Here's how Anandamoyamai describes it. She says, Just as thoughts about your home crowd into your mind as you draw nearer to your dwelling place, so also the closer you get to God, the greater the joy derived from the ever-increasing variety of experiences of the divine. Indeed, as you advance to your real home, you realize more and more of this joy. So, specifically what she's talking about. What are these various experiences she's talking about? Well, illuminations come in various kinds. There are various kinds of illuminations. Uh, one kind is uh, intellectual illumination. Intellectual in illumination here does not mean something that's a product of reasoning. It's something that occurs to the intellect, but it doesn't come through logical processes. And it usually has to do with meaning. Uh, here's what the Lakamatara Sutra says about this. During advanced stages of the path, thoughtfulness will give way to mindfulness, wherein discriminating meanings and logical deductions and rationalizations will give way to intuitions of significance and spirit. So it has this intuitive quality, even though it's, it's coming through the mind. Uh, Dr. Wolf, my teacher, described what he called 
uh, several noetic realizations. These aren't ultimate realization, but they're along the way, these noetic realizations he had. And one of them had to do with this teaching from Hinduism that you are Brahman, that thou art. I am Atman is another way to put it. And he had read this for years and he'd figured it out logically. You know, he was a very, very logical guy. He was a, trained as a philosopher and a mathematician. And he said he got to the point where he had no uh, logical uh, qualms about this. It, he understood it made sense logically and he accepted it completely. And then he was talking to a friend of this about this particular teaching and suddenly he understood it on a whole new level. It wasn't that uh, there was new something new added logically, but as he wrote about it, he, he was filled with this a joy and assurance that he'd never experienced before. So it's getting this, not just the surface meaning or the surface confidence that this is true, but this deeper, richer spiritual confidence, seeing the spiritual significance of it. Sometimes uh, whole new meanings will open up to you, not just the confirmation of something you've already understood. And they can be literally inexpressible. Here's how Teresa Vila describes this. She says, In a single instant, he has taught so many things all at once that if he were to labor for years on end in trying to fit them all into his imagination and thought, he could not succeed with a thousandth part of them this sense of being flooded with meanings, and that your thought cannot contain them. And the more you enter this stage, the more these things start to happen to you. Here's how Rumi described it, the great Sufi poet. He says, once the mirror of your heart has become pure and clear, you will see pictures from beyond the domain of water and clay. Not only pictures, but also the painter." Not only the carpet of good fortune, but also the carpet spreader. So you see all these different traditions recognize that this happens. Why? This isn't a question of theory. You know, somebody uh, figured out theologically. They're just mystics reporting their experience. There'll also be experience of inner bliss, the kind of bliss you never really imagined possible. It's true. Whatever bliss you can think of in terms of... Uh, sexual bliss or the bliss of getting a, a job that you really coveted or whatever, pale in comparison. The only thing that I've ever heard described from a worldly realm that would be comparable, maybe childbirth. I don't have that experience, but I've heard women describe childbirth as, you know, comparable perhaps to this. Here's how Abraham Abulafi uh, describes it. He was a great Kabbalist of the Middle Ages. He says, and you shall feel another spirit awakening within yourself and strengthening you and passing over your entire body and giving you pleasure. And it will seem to you that balm has been poured over you from the crown of your head to your feet once or many times. And you shall rejoice and feel from it a great pleasure with gladness and trembling. So this isn't just a woo-wee sort of bliss. It's a sensory bliss. It can be expressed that way as well. Lali Shwari, a great uh, Hindu mystic, she sings about this stage. She says, O infinite consciousness brimming with elixir, you live within my body, and I worship only you. I do not care if I die, take birth, or pass into some other state. These things are so ordinary now. This is the kind of experience that uh, makes 
things like life and death, or even uh, when she means other states, she talks about longing for God realms or heavens or whatever. All that is irrelevant to her now. And it's inside. This consciousness lives within you. Another form of illumination is to see that the glimpses of the beauty of the world ordinary people get, walking out in nature or by the beach or whatever, that this beauty here is not just some uh, accidental feature of the world, it's not just some sort of subjective thing, that has tremendous significance. The beauty of the world is the sign that the world is a manifestation of the divine. And to most people, it happens sort of just randomly, spontaneously in their lives. Uh, or maybe they can go out to nature and, and their minds get a little quiet, so they have more of this experience. They don't understand what's really happening here. As that ego mind is letting go and becoming quiet and you're giving up all these self-centered thoughts and concerns and worries, then this beauty that's always there starts to shine through more and more. And it's not just an aesthetic beauty now. It has a spiritual significance. You see it as a manifestation of the divine, as a call of the divine. In the Tibetan tradition, like the Hindus and like other traditions, they practice mantra. Mantras repeating a name of God or some holy uh, refrain over and over. Mantra means protection. And no doubt in the exoteric forms of the religion, it means protection against devils and bad luck and stuff like that if you repeat a mantra. For the Tibetans, though, esoterically, it means protection against ordinary deluded appearances. In other words, our normal experience of the world, our ordinary experience of the world is deluded. All these things appear to us, but they're all deluded. So mantra is a way of protecting yourself from the arising of deluded experiences. And if you do mantra in conjunction with a practice of deity yoga, what you begin to see is this very world, but instead of being this very world, it is a mandala, uh, an environment of a deity. And it all manifests to you as the environment of a deity, rather than this sort of mundane kind of uh, disjointed affair where, you know, everything is separate and nothing has any particular meaning. Ananda Moyamai says the same thing from a Hindu perspective. She says, talking about the divine, in him should one become engrossed, lost, affixed, immersed, stripped of everything, and then this whole world will be seen as the outer expression of the inner reality, as the one himself, the field of his creative activity. That's what this world is. This world is the play of God. It's not what we think it is. It's not what it appears to be. Here's how a great Sufi, Rabia, expressed this. She says, O oh God, Whenever I listen to the voice of anything you have made, the rustling of the trees, the trickling of water, the cries of birds, the flickering of a shadow, the roar of the wind, the song of the thunder, I hear it saying, God is one, nothing can be compared with God. Now, this isn't just pretty poetry. She's not like some sort of, you know, uh, a romantic English poet of the 19th century. This is reporting actual experience. As the Sufis say, everything that appears is a divine self-disclosure.
The reality in its ultimate aspect is formless. It's formless because all forms are contained in it, but nothing stands out, so you can't see anything. So the only way that, that the divine can uh, express that potential is to manifest things. It's an endless manifestation, and it's all an expression of that potential. Just the way a dancer dancing is expressing the potential for dance within the dancer. And so this gesture and this gesture are all expressions of this dance. And the whole dance is already contained in the dance before the dancer starts to dance. The dancer comes on stage. Oh, what was that famous great Russian dancer? Um, no, no, no. Earlier. Najinsky. Najinsky. He was, went a little mad, spiritually mad at the end of his life. But he became the greatest dancer of modern times anyway. And he would come on stage and he'd sit there. And the orchestra would start, and he'd just sit there a long time, half an hour or so, you know, and people would start whispering and getting uncomfortable and restless, and people would start yelling at him, and the producers would be in the wings saying, dance, Najinsky, the people paid their money. And they'd say, I can't just dance like that. I have to wait. I can just mechanically dance. And he'd wait and wait, and then he would start to dance. Well, while he was sitting there, that dance was already in him. It just had to come out. And then, if you have not had a Gnostic flash yet on a spiritual path, you'll almost certainly have one or two or more in this stage. And what is a Gnostic flash? It's an actual glimpse of this reality. And it's like the sun uh, is covered by clouds, and just for a moment they part, and there it is. And then they, they cloud back up again. But once you've seen that, once you've seen that, then... All the doubt vanishes from a spiritual path. Now you've seen what mystics are talking about. This is an ultimate enlightenment. But now this is your experience. You know what they're talking about. It's a very, very important experience on a spiritual path. Gnostic flashes are not in the same category of these other sorts of illuminations. Uh, they may be very blissful. They must always generate tremendous bliss and all that. But they also have a very rugged, earthy quality about it. You don't feel like you're transported to some other realm or something. You really feel like, I touched reality. I mean, reality. Like you might have heard about apples all your life, and then somebody hands you an apple, and for one moment you actually touch it, and then they snatch it away from you. But you, yeah, you know they're apples. You touch that apple. Uh, one of mine occurred in the middle of a dream, actually, and I was traveling, making these videotapes and so forth. And I was at this community where they did a lot of hatha yoga and mantras and uh, home songs. And you're supposed to hear bells or music and see lights and all these things were supposed to happen. And, you know, I was trying to do this. And uh, I wasn't getting all that far with it. But I went to sleep one night at the end of this. Or, and as I'm sleeping, I suddenly was like going into a dream, but no dreams were manifesting. It was like sinking deeper and deeper and deeper. And then it was indescribable, but at the bottom, it's like I touched something very, very real. It's like something, if I had to use any kind of word, the analogy would be something tactile, you know? And I woke up, and I just, I knew I'd, somehow in this well of nothingness, I had touched something. Sure enough, this is exactly how my gnosis eventually unfolded, the same, going back to the same place, basically. But you have these Gnostic flashes. And then these can start happening quite often in your life. So they become rather common. 
not just uh, every once in a while when you go on a retreat. And it really just transforms your whole life in the sense of if you look back on your life when you started on a spiritual path and what's happening to you uh, now, that it's like night and day. And you look back on yourself with great compassion of how narrow, how restricted, how petty, how torturous your life was with all this self-concern and worry and, oh, me and what's going to happen to me and I'm not going to get what I want and all that. You now see it all as a cause for great compassion. And so the virtue associated with the stage is gratitude. Gratitude is the natural response to this transformation that's happening in your life. It's not something you have to work up. It's just always there, occurring to you all the time. And it's not only gratitude for the, these gifts of grace, these illuminations, but it's also gratitude for the unpleasant experiences, for the adverse conditions. Because once you've really begun to transcend this self-centeredness, once you've really begun to surrender your own will, then you no longer look at the world in terms of what's good for me and what's bad for me. It's all good for you because the adverse situations are your teacher, just like the enemy is your greatest guru. Everything that happens to you is a teaching. The whole world is a mandala of compassion manifesting to you. So this is why Jamgon Kantrol says, talking about specifically about when you get sick, which most people don't find pleasant. He says, when you get sick, think this. If this hadn't happened, I should have been distracted by materialistic involvements and would not have maintained mindfulness of Dharma. Since this has brought Dharma to my attention again, it is the Guru's activity, and I am very grateful. This is, again, part of a whole teaching here about always being aware of impermanence because it makes you mindful of the importance of practicing dharma in this life. This life is a precious opportunity. So when sickness arises or when somebody close to us dies, it's not that it won't make us feel sad, but it's a reminder. This life is tremendously precious. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. It's not going to be here forever. You too are going to get sick. You too are going to die. It's, it's a, an act of compassion to warn you. All life, then, at this stage, becomes an occasion for gratitude. Because as Rumi wrote, each and every part of the world is a snare for the fool and a means of deliverance for the wise. Again, it's not a matter of going anyplace. It's not a matter of changing your lifestyle. It's a matter of just changing your perspective. What is a snare for the fool is a means of deliverance for the, for the wise. Sickness was a snare for the fool, but a means of deliverance for the wise. Nothing has to change in that sense outwardly. But as wonderful as all these illuminations are, these inner bliss experiences and the beauty of the world and so forth, this is not the end of the path. A lot of people make that mistake, by the way. They think the end of the path is that you're somehow going to sort of move into this uh, stage where everything is... Uh, this manifest sort of bliss and beauty and whatnot, and that that's really what the path is all about. It'll just continue that way for the rest of your life. You'll just be having all these wonderful experiences. But that isn't the end of the path, and if you're lucky, you'll be voyaging along here, sailing through these magical archipelagos and tasting all this wonderful exotic fruit and whatever, 
and expecting, ah, I must be getting close. Enlightenment must be just over the horizon, must be the next aisle I'll reach. And you're going along, and suddenly something absolutely, totally unexpected happens. The wind dies. You've experienced that before. The wind dies, okay, so you try to hoist your sails a little more, maybe to catch a little bit of breeze. The sails won't work. And they collapse. And then maybe you try to, uh, you know, get going a little bit by moving the rudder back and forth. The rudder breaks. They look at the hole, it springs leaks. Water's filling up the boat. You look for your bailing can, it's sailing off to sea. Not only is nothing working, but the ship is sinking. And you can't do anything about it. Here's how Ramana Maharshi describes this. He says, Sadhanas, sadhanas are practices, all the practices that you're used to doing, meditation, inquiry, precepts, and all that. Sadhanas are needed so long as one has not realized. They are for putting an end to obstacles. Finally, there comes a stage when a person feels helpless, notwithstanding the sadhanas. He is unable to pursue the much-cherished sadhanas. You just can't. It's not like you don't want to. You sit down to meditate and, and nothing happens. You go to make an inquiry and nothing happens. I just can't do it. There's nothing to be done. The problem is, the path has led you all the way up to this point where you have been able to surrender everything to God, and, and in a relative sense, this is progress on the path. You've put an end to all, removed all these obstacles, as Ramana Maharshi says, and you get to the place where there's only one thing left to surrender, yourself. And that's the one thing you can't do. There's a paradox about this, and if you think about it, though, as long as there's a self there trying to surrender self, that is the self that has to be surrendered. A lot of people uh, on a spiritual path, they talk about dissolving their ego, like their ego is so like a wart on their nose or something, you know. <laughs> So I'm working on dissolving my ego. Well, the I that's working on dissolving the ego is what has to be dissolved, not the ego. So you're stuck. And being stuck, you start to sink into this last and final crisis of the spiritual path, which I call kenosis. And that will be the subject of our next talk next time. So are there any questions or comments? Yes. yes. Um, you suggested a prayer on waking and a prayer on sleeping mm -hmm. uh, regarding service. What was the prayer on sleeping? In the morning, as soon as you wake up, pray, Lord, accept as thy service everything I shall do today. And then, as you're falling asleep, pray, In self-surrender, I bow to thee, placing my head at thy holy feet. Hey, Joel, look, that's almost Caligula. That was my next question. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you read my book? I did, and I just read that part. But how did you, I've forgotten how you felt about trying to meet him every day. Oh, well, the, first of all, it changed. Now, look, this is interesting because it just immediately taking this a practice transformed my whole attitude towards the day in a very positive way. Mm -hmm. I used to dread 
uh, going to work on the days when I had a meeting with Caligula. But once I decided to take him as my uh, object of practice, my enemy, I started to look forward to those days because it was an opportunity <laughs> to practice, right? So I, I'd come into work and I'd say to my secretary, you know, who's, what's on the agenda? And he said, no, 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 two o'clock you have this meeting with Caligula. Oh, yeah, really? Great. Or sometimes I'd know, you know, the day before I'd be driving to work, you know. So right away, look, look what happens. This is what Rumi's talking about. Something that used to be a source of suffering now became at least a source of interest and curiosity, if nothing else, and an opportunity to practice, right? In that metaphor with the wind, basically, I mean, the wind is something that's completely out of your control uh -huh. in reference to spiritual, uh -huh. to the spiritual path. Uh, and, I mean, the doldrums aren't something that lasts forever either. The wind will pick up again regardless of what you do. In uh -huh. sense. So, I mean, that stuck point is kind of something that's out of your control, and no matter what kind of practice you're engaged in, it seems to kind of come and go, ebb and flow, so to speak. So, this is true. How do you, do, do you see that there's some kind of a practice that you can actually give through to control something which is, in the first case, uncontrollable? Uh, sorry, say that again? Do you... Well, I mean, you seem to be saying that it, there, there, seem, there needs to be a, um, the death of the self in order for things to progress past that point. But in a sense, this is completely uncontrollable in any case. It has very little to do with whether yourself or this absolute ideal that you... You know, this absolute consciousness that you're referring to can do, uh, then, then how do you get there? And is it really something that's in your control or not? <laughs> well, you see, the big joke of it is that you never existed in the first place. So uh, working the rudders and the sails and all this was all divine. It was all grace. Again, it's the paradox of the, of the whole path, but the, at the end, there was nobody walking any spiritual path. This is the delusion. This is the delusion you're trying to see through. You could define enlightenment as realizing there's no one to be enlightened. That is the definition of enlightenment. We're going to talk more about this next week and uh, the second Sunday in August, because we're going to talk about this is what you start to discover in the next two stages. But I'll tell you this, it's not a question of uh, being able to figure it out. And this is why gnosis is beyond what the mind can conceive, literally beyond. And, and that's not just because it's so wonderful you can't conceive it, because it will not be contained by our limited concepts. So as such, it's not really something that's ever realizable, as long as you're in this materially constrained existence. It's, it's mean, what? It's, it's, not, it's never something that can be realized. There's never really uh, the ultimate achievement of enlightenment, as, as was the case for Buddha and a lot of other mystical teachers. So and to the extent that you're still constrained in the material existence, it's not something well, no one's ever been achieve. constrained in the material existence because there's no material existence even. Well, to the extent that we have a body and to the extent that there's a linear... Okay, uh, now stop. Uh, but look at all these assumptions you have. We have a body. Mm -hmm. you, you have a body? Okay. That's an assumption. <laughs> That's well, who, who is the you that has the body? Well, to the extent that there are material things. To, to the extent that we can talk about time and space. But I can talk about uh, dragons and unicorns. Those are constrained within the limits of time and space. And so to the extent that we can still talk about a beginning and an end, and to the extent that we can speak, speak about... But wait a minute, it's, it's not the speaking about it that's the problem. The, it's the, the, the believing it. Of, the conception of. It's not the conceiving of, it's the believing of. See, there's no problem of us talking about uh, devils, right? 
I mean, I, I, you know what I'm talking about when mm -hmm. I talk about devils, right? And we could talk a lot about devils, right? But now, supposing I start telling you there's a devil in my bedroom there that torments me every night, and I start asking you advice about how to get rid of this devil. Wouldn't you try to make me realize there are no devils? Isn't the solution to the problem not that there is some technique for getting rid of devils, but just to simply realize there are none? That it's a construct, basically. Yeah, it's a figment of your imagination. Well, the ego self is a figment of the imagination. The idea that I have a body. The, the body is not a problem. Who's the I that has a body? That's what you're looking for. Yes. And what a mystic says is, and I'm not trying to convince you. I'm saying, yeah. you come to me, you say, I have a body. Great, go find that I. Who, what, what are you talking about? What is the referent for that word I? And what I found out, and what all the mystics before me found out, is when they went to look, they could never find it. It's ephemeral. It didn't exist. Just like when we say it's raining outside. What does the it refer to? It's a grammatical marker. Our, our grammar requires a noun, you know, to, to uh, take the is raining, but it's, it doesn't really refer to anything. So there's no problem of speaking it's raining outside. I mean, I can, just because I can talk about it, I'm not fooled by that construction. You're not fooled by that construction. So there's no problem. The problem comes when we are fooled. Another example, good example, is you go to the movies. Jennifer and I went to see, um, what was that movie last night? Uh, Men in Black. Men in Black. Have you seen <laughs> it? It was cute, actually. Good escapist entertainment. And it's uh, got all these aliens, you know, like some of them are sort of, some of them are funny and cute, but some of them are horrible and, you know, whatever. So we're watching the movie, right? And uh, people around us, you know, they're all reacting to the movie. I mean, <coughs> when the alien jumps. <laughs> At the end, you jump when that thing came back. Oh, yeah. <coughs> she goes, uh, you know. And people are laughing when there's jokes, you know. So, so far, there's no problem here. They're just enjoying it. I mean, you enjoy this. And why you, we had to pay $6 to go <laughs> jump and be frightened and stuff, right? <laughs> but now, supposing in the middle of this, I see Jennifer's really trembling and saying, we got to get out of here. We got to get out of here. And I said, Jennifer, what's the matter? She says, there are aliens all around here. And I say, Jennifer, yeah, but it's just a movie. And then I realize she's lost track of the fact we're in a movie, right? Suppose she goes and is hiding under the seats and try, trying to crawl out the aisle, you know? And I'm going after saying, Jennifer, it's just a movie. <laughs> see where the problem comes? It's nothing to do with the body. There's no problem with the body whatsoever or any material constraints, or time, or space, or any ideas, or any of that. It's this mistaking what is uh, unreal for what is real, and what is real for what is unreal. So then what you call Gnostic enlightenment is basically that basic realization. That's basic realization. That's exactly what it is. It's just realizing reality. Oh, this is the way it is. Not that way. So, Joel, yes. what's it like for you talking to all of us who are trapped by this illusion? Well, in, in, a, <laughs> in a relative way, I, I said this to somebody else not too long ago, it's like waking up in a nut hut. <laughs> but uh, nut huts can be delightful too, you know. <laughs> but sometimes it does, it does feel that way. <laughs> what, she thinks I'm a nut, see? <laughs>
see, again, mm -hmm. language betrays mm -hmm. us uh -huh. because, you know, in a relative sense, I use the word I all the time. It would be very confusing if I didn't. But truly speaking, when you ask a question like that, an ultimate answer is enlightenment is realizing there's no one there to be enlightened. There's no one here. This is actually, you see, it's so simple and obvious. Right now, what is happening? There's consciousness, right? There are appearances in consciousness, right? Things are appearing. You know, all these things are appearing. And that's it. Did you ever see any eye? Did you ever experience any eye here? Thoughts eye appear. Yeah, a whole bunch of thoughts going on. As thoughts, nobody's questioned that. But that's all there is. Nobody ever saw anything else. Nobody ever experienced anything else. Always that's all it is. It's a fun game to play. We construct I, you, do you know what I mean? It's like uh, where I grew up, uh, they didn't have formal youth recreational centers and stuff. We had to go down to the park and we wanted to play a little uh, touch football. I take my jacket, put it this corner of the field. Somebody else put their jacket there. Somebody put their jacket there. Somebody put their jacket there. And that end. And suddenly you have a football field with all these boundaries. And then you get in there and you run up and down. You throw the football and you try to tag each other. And then and somebody stands and says, oh, you're out of bounds. And you go, I was not. I was not. Yes, you were. Or talk, nothing's there. We constructed it and we superimposed it on this field so we could play this game. If we want to play the game, we have to do that. But uh, at least we rarely got lost. I think maybe a couple of fist fights when people started to forget it was supposed to be a game. You know, people though can look at you know soccer games and whatnot. People forget what's going on that it's a game and can turn into war. But this is again an analogy for the you know, it's losing track of reality, just losing track of reality. But the bottom line is, you have to realize for yourself. Realize it. Don't take my word for it. Don't take any of these mystics' word for it. People get stopped on the spiritual path because they get stuck with belief, and that satisfies them. And as Simone Weil said, when it comes to things divine, uh, belief is not good enough. Only certainty is appropriate. The absolute demands absolute certainty. Relative things you can be relatively certain about. When you, when you have this absolute certainty, is it really clear? In other words, I, I know people, and even myself, y'all has like, like, I'm really certain about this, but it turns out that it's false, it shifts later. And here, from our perspective, we, we feel absolutely certain about a number of things. Do you know, how do we really know? Okay. Is something appearing in consciousness? Yes. There is an appearance in consciousness. Yes. Are you absolutely certain about that? Could I convince you now that nothing is appearing in consciousness? No. Uh, no way I could convince you, right? Knowing you, you silver sun devil, you probably could. <laughs> no, but no, there's no way I could convince you. I could, I could give you the greatest convoluted metaphysical arguments and prove to you that nothing's appearing in consciousness. There's no way you can be convinced of that. What might be appearing in consciousness and what its status is? Is it real? Is it an illusion? Am I dreaming? Am I awake? All that we could argue. But just the naked experience of something appearing in consciousness, there's no way you can doubt it. 
So that's the absolute certainty you're talking about. That's right. See, now that's a certainty that is before thought. You don't have to think about it. It's not a certainty that comes from any pondering or cogitating on it. It's just there. It's just immediate. It's just obvious. It's just, you know what I mean? Yes. It's just that. So that is the certainty of Gnosis. It's not an intellectual certainty. And it's not something you even go around thinking about. Any more than you go around thinking, well, now, am I certain things are appearing or not? But if anybody asks you, you don't hesitate to say, yes, there's something's appearing. Unless, of course, you become lucid in dreamless sleep, and then you'll be absolutely certain that nothing's appearing, without any doubt. There are states where nothing does appear. There's just consciousness, pure consciousness. That's why those states are so valuable. But doesn't certainty itself, I mean, in that latter example, doesn't certainty appear in consciousness? Well, now you see, we're trapped by language again. If I use certainty as a, some sort of quality or as an idea that we can band around, then now I've turned certainty into an idea, and then that's an idea appearing in consciousness. But in... Uh, in dreamless sleep, or at states of high samadhi or whatever, where literally no objects are appearing, if you are lucid, the trick is, and here, see our language is also trapping us, are you lucid? If there is lucidity in that state, to be more technical, then it's very obvious what everything is. The, the proof of God goes like this. Subtract everything in the universe out of the universe, and what's left is God. Your problem is you're thinking too much. Yeah. Everybody's problem is that it's not you personally. Well, you've been training me to get stupid. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you're not there yet, but you're working on it. <laughs> Why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close? And you're welcome to hang around, have some tea out there, and uh, check out the library. And until we meet again, peace to you all. <laughs>